So I'd like to use this time to continue uh, with some reflections on the nature of life's uh, inseparability, indivisibility. It's not two-ness, non-duality. It's transparency. More words that give some shade of meaning, of some shades of meaning to what we're speaking about. There, an aspect of life that's very, very central in the Buddha's teachings, and sometimes also referred to with words like emptiness, voidness, uh, essencelessness, or selflessness. And along with their centrality, there's, there's quite some subtlety and it's and because of its subtlety, it's an area that often uh, quite some distortion happens. So I, I guess I'll do my best with trying to draw out some of that subtlety in as clear a way as I can. And I'll ask you to do your best in listening the quality of refinement and subtlety. And that means, like we were doing in the meditation earlier, not so much to listen to the words <coughs> with the trying to make sense of necessarily, but listening as much as possible within your own experience. <coughs> listening to, you might say, where the words are coming from or where the words are pointing to. One of the common ways that we speak about the in the non-separateness of life or the indivisibility of life is in the idea of interconnectedness. And that's maybe an, an easy place to start, a familiar place to start. I think it's... Uh, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah well-known and well-loved Vietnamese teacher who first coined that term in English, interconnectedness. And the associated terms of interbeing and the way he expresses it, which is very beautiful, he says, all things inter-are. And as we saw in the guided meditation earlier, pointing to the way in which all things inter-are and the sense of interconnectedness actually has gained a lot of mainstream acceptance in terms of uh, planetary life. And James Lovelock, who was the first to uh, come up with the idea of Gaia as the, the planet Earth, as uh, an indivisible organism itself. And the Gaia theory, which 
kind of coincidentally, you know, Gaia comes from, I think it's Greek, for the earth. And at the same time, Gaia was the place where the Buddha sat under the tree. And uh, Christopher, who was the founder of Gaia House, and was very involved in uh, ecological movements here in Devon, and actually as well as being a Dharma teacher, stood as a, an MP for the Green Party a couple of times and assured me that he, was, he only stood as a Green MP because he was very confident that he'd never get elected. <laughs> and that's the twin origins, actually, for Gaia House, the name Gaia House. And Lovelock was d- widely derided in scientific circles when he first uh, started to to speak about the earth as as an indivisible organism and as climate and biology and atmosphere and uh, sentient life as all an indivisible part of Gaia was widely and almost completely derided for that idea and that's only about probably maybe nearly 30 years ago now and that sense of the earth as, a, as an indivisible organism has actually gained pretty much widespread acceptance. It doesn't seem to have helped very much <laughs> with our willingness to give the appropriate degree of care to the indivisibleness and preciousness of planetary life. But just the, the sense that that's, you know, that sense of life as indivisible, life as interconnected, is, has quite some mainstream currency, which I think is important, right? It's a relatively new idea. It's actually extraordinary to think that even the sense, when I say planet Earth or Gaia, and that you have that sense of the Earth as the image in your mind, you know, that image has only existed for about 60 years. Was it 61, that uh, first space flight? Mm-hmm. And so our sense of the, the wholeness of life on Earth, at least, if not cosmic life, is well established. And it's, and it's easy for us to have the sense of interconnectedness, that all things inter-are. And yet, we make one important distinction or omission. It seems like all things inter are except one. We basically, in that sense, and even if I say Gaia and interconnectedness and all things are, you think of, oh yes, it's over there. It's in my mind's eye, this big ball of blue-green, it's there. And everyone's on it and all the earth and all life. Where's the one who's thinking about that? Where's the one who's conceiving? The, the unconscious, unexamined assumption about the one who's conceiving is that it, it, I, am outside of that conception. So however much we like the idea that all things are interconnected, etc., it's important not to underestimate how 
fundamentally hardwired duality is into our psyche. All conventional experience is dualistic. Or, or I'm going to rewrite that sentence. All conventional experience appears to be dualistic. We conceive of our experience in terms of duality. The basic duality, self and world. This and that, here and there, etc. We don't consciously conceive of it as dualistic. We don't say, oh, I'm hanging out in duality. But, But that example of interconnectedness shows us that even when we we uh, incline our attention to something holistic, all-inclusive, inseparable. We still conceive of that inseparable whole as out there somehow. We keep on positing our own consciousness as outside the whole. And that's really the... But a way of pointing to the fundamental human spiritual dilemma. We feel ourselves to be apart from life. Not in terms of common sense, like we were distinguishing earlier this afternoon. Common sense would say, no, I'm part of life. Look, hello, lives and breathes. But our unexamined assumption is that we somehow we feel ourselves to be apart from life. And much of what we do and uh, struggle with is an attempt to feel part of life, one with life, at rest in life, at peace with life, loved by life, held close to the bosom of life. In whatever way, whether we seek, and if we look closely at our activities, We seek that here and there and everywhere. We seek it in our our fulfillment through work and relationship and consumption and gratification and pleasure. And, again, please don't take my word for it, but even in the the realms of uh, rather a bit sparse on pleasure, here at Guy House, or at least a little sparse on conventional pleasure. That's why lunch assumes such huge proportions <laughs> in the mind. Right? But if you just look at, uh, if you just examine the the motivation in most, maybe all of your getting, having, doing, and becoming. I want this. I like that. I need such and such. There's an attempt in that getting to somehow close the gap between where I am, apart, apart, somehow apart from life, and where I want to be. Oh, fulfilled, at peace, at rest, included. Mm-hmm. So, we, we grow up into the seeming complete normality of dualism. And, as I say, if all conventional experience appears to us as dualistic, we can't access. What do we mean by non-dualistic experience? 
We can't conceive of it. Nobody can conceive of it. Not you, not me, not the Buddha. We can't conceive of a non-dualistic experience because conceiving works in duality. The conceiver and the conception. The thinker and the thought. The subject and the object. We've had plenty of non-dual experience. But try to recover it. But you can't, because the apparatus that's trying to do the recovery is dualistic apparatus, right? Conceptual mind. That's why you can't remember being in the womb. You hadn't developed a dualistic consciousness. Your memories begin as the sense of growing, totally appropriately, growing into a sense of individuality. As the very beginnings of the sense of self develop, then the very beginnings of the sense of other develop, and at some point there's enough sense of self, and therefore enough sense of other, in other words, enough sense of difference, of duality, that we recognise something as separate to ourselves. And the developmentally that happens one-ish, two-ish, something. And uh, it's around that time that you can probably access the earliest <coughs> fragments of memory. In other words, the earliest fragments of dualistic consciousness. And of course, it's a really helpful development. If you'd never developed that, you'd be in the primordial soup. You'd be as effective as a newborn or not yet born infant. As communicative, as, uh, you know, etc. It's a wonderful thing, dualistic consciousness, don't get me wrong. Look at what it can do, look at what it can create, look at what it can imagine. Look at the poetry and music and genius and engineering and uh, contact and communication. There's something fabulous about being human in all its dualistic glory. And yet, at some point, at some point that we, that some reach early on in life and some reach later on in life and some don't seem to reach at all in life and maybe it's taken quite a few lives to reach there, who knows but at some point we sense that that uh, that that dualistic world isn't the whole story we sense that the, the sense of separation that we feel from life isn't isn't enough and isn't actually completely true at some point we start to have what we might call some spiritual intuition or some spiritual longing or what we might call the, the very beginnings of an evolution to beyond dualistic consciousness so just like there was an evolution into dualistic consciousness as an infant then we make it to the more or less normal, more or less functional adult stage. 
and then there's the assumption the world lives in the assumption that duality is the whole story there's the assumption that making it to more or less adulthood is the end of the road for some reason even when we look at evolution you know we look at evolution as mostly as just being in the past there were amoebas and then lizards and then monkeys and then us I may have missed a few steps out (laughs) and the assumption is that and now it's finished evolution's finished and this is is it this is the result (laughs) and we tend to we look at the we look at the evolution you know the kind of physical evolution of the change in body and we look at the evolution in the change of brain stem and cortexes and things but of course as, lo- as well as the evolution of biology evolution of brain function is the evolution of consciousness what a strange idea to assume that, that this is, the, this is the, the final perfected version no, this is very much work in progress and the dhammata, that natural intelligence that life has that we were exploring this morning, somehow unfolds in this orderly way. Like you were saying, the intelligence of the way seasons happen. The intelligence of the way bodies and organisms and planets manage themselves in some mysterious self-organizing way. There's an evolutionary principle going on, undeniably. One doesn't have to personify that into a, a Godhead figure. One doesn't have to anthropomorphize it when one speaks about intelligence or divine intelligence or something. And yet, unmistakably, there's some evolutionary principle at work. Life is not just un- unfolding, but developing. And so at some point, whether or not we we think about it in those terms, at some point we're confronted by a a kind of frustration at the limitations of our own development. We've developed this this wonderful capacity to conceive dualistically with the, the conceptual sophistication and the linguistic sophistication and the... Uh, hand-eye coordination and all the, you know, and yet, and then we start to look at the nature of our experience or the nature of the world. We start to look maybe at the nature of the perceived, the world out there, and the nature. It gets a bit more tricky, the nature of the perceiver. The one who it seems to be doing the looking. The one that we keep setting aside from the world. And when we look at the world, not outwardly, we start to see there's something unsatisfactory about the world. Something unsatisfactory about the world's blind assumption that the world is all there is. The world might start to look shallow to us or unsatisfactory to us. 
We might start to have the kind of existential crisis that can feel rather confusing but is actually a great blessing in disguise. Where the world is not enough. And so as we turn away from the world in some way, and we, that turn tends to be in some way a turn inward, a turn from the, the fascination with the conceived, the produced, the outer, to a fascination or an inquiry into the perceiver, the inner, the one who senses herself or himself to be a part. And as we explore the inner world, in the same way that the world seems unsatisfactory in some way, as we explore the inner, we find that all is not what it seemed. That the initial certainty that we grow into in, in normal dualistic life, which is basically the certainty that I'm here, That's the certainty we start out with. That's the certainty that gets constantly reinforced as we're growing up. People keep calling us you. And they give us a name and they point to us and they refer to us and we refer back to them and pretty soon it's obvious. And yet, like we were exploring a little this afternoon, when we start to actually look into, actually contemplate, actually really try to find where this seeming, indwelling, certain martinness is. I can't find it. I can find the fluidity of bodily sensation, which I tend to latch on as being Martin except it keeps eluding my grasp. I can't find Martinness in the sensation. I have all kinds of thoughts of Martinness, except I can't find the owner or the producer of those thoughts. And so the seeming certainty of that dualistic life starts to break down. That's, and there too, that's actually a great blessing and it can feel rather unsettling. And it tends to be that the degree of our confusion, the degree of our desperation, the degree of our rejection of the world is, kind of conf- is directly in proportion with the degree of uh, intensity and unsettling and discomfort and wrestling with the fact that all is not what it seems. And that's where it's really a blessing to have a practice. A lot, of, a lot of people are somehow, a lot of people see through the unreal nature 
of duality. But often there's no signposts for how to engage with that, where to look for answers with that. And a lot of the trouble that we, that we get into, the trouble that we get, the difficulty that we get into through addiction and uh, mental illness and, and depression and just and lostness and hopelessness and meaninglessness is because we somehow see through the world to something truer, clearer, fuller, freer. And yet we, we, there's no, we don't have the signposts, we don't have the guidance, we don't have the context to make sense of it. We don't have the practice to actually engage and explore it. So that's what I mean when I say it's a blessing. To be not only at that stage of evolution where one sees that the world is not enough, or that there's, a, there's possibilities beyond the world, we might say, conventional world, but also to have the means, the practices, the guidance, the signposts. In the Zen tradition, when they speak about this practice, there's a very, as the Zen tradition specialises in, there's a very kind of simple elucidation of the process, where it says, first, one sees the mountain. And then the mountain dissolves into radiant nothingness. And there's no mountain. And then there's the mountain again. <laughs> so we grow, we, we grow familiar with looking at the mountain. With, um, in other words, the world. And with a kind of blind assumption about the mountain's reality. About the world's reality. But as we start to investigate, as we start to have a greater sensitivity to the immediacy of things, the fluidity of things, the inseparability of things, we find that the mountain isn't real. We find we might say that the mountain is holographic. Its appearance is real. Like we were exploring with sensations and sounds and birdsong. The appearance is real. But we can't find the essence. It eludes us. And as we, as we explore what we call self and what we call world, we might have increasing sense of a kind of a melting a dissolution of the a certain unreality of the world and again this is really a blessing and sometimes it doesn't feel like one sometimes there can be a sense that some of you have been reporting this week of a kind of free fall right? a kind of losing our familiar reference points Ah. Uh, a certain disorientation and along with that there can also be an exhilaration a wonder at life's radiance and mysteriousness 
And sometimes we find that that part of the, the, the path, we might say, which is the, the journey from the mountain to no mountain, the, the, the journey of dissolution, is one where there's both the, the exhilaration and the love and the longing for and the recognition of the true and the deep and the beautiful. And the sense of disorientation and loss and particularly the fear of loss. Because we've gotten very, very used to duality. We've gotten very, very kind of cosily used to this one. And even though he causes me all kinds of trouble, and even though he's got a crazy mind, and even though he seems to cause himself you know, all kinds of unnecessary complexity, I'm really worried about what would happen if he wasn't here. <laughs> right? We tend to, as we sense that dissolution, as we investigate our experience and see its, its essenceless nature, we tend to fear a loss of self. Sometimes we fear a loss of life. Sometimes we just feel a loss, a fear, a loss of the familiar. We fear a loss of pleasure. And it can seem like that process of dissolution is one where I ju- I'm having to give everything up. Or one where I'm losing everything. And often spiritual traditions seem like they're reinforcing that. You've got to give everything up. You've got to let it all go, Neo. <laughs> you remember that from the Matrix? Fear, doubt and disbelief. Free your mind. I get the impression that film reference didn't land, but okay. <laughs> With some of you, I'm sure it did. I, I keep thinking The Matrix is a really recent film, but it's 15 years ago now. <laughs> So the, the, the traditions seem to support that view. You've got, to, you've got to let it all go. Renounce, they say. And because we're used to the self-sense that we cling to, we make a lot of assumptions about what it is I've got to renounce. We think I've got to give up pleasure. I've got to give up all my attachments. I've got to give up my habits. I've got to give up my uh, time. I've got to give up all kinds of things we think we have to give up, which sometimes might feel exhilarating and inspiring and other times feels like no king way. (laughs) So it's worth exploring, actually. What? Because there is a loss the loss of the mountain is a, the loss of the world, the loss of the self sense. There is a real loss there. But it's not the loss of pleasure. It's not the loss of life. It's not the loss of the sense of self. Sense of self remains utterly available. It's the loss of our compulsions, the loss of our contractions, the loss of our confusions. 
That's what we lose. But we tend to, we lose them by somehow through the willingness to give up, to drop, to dissolve, to release, to dare to inhabit the void. No mountain, no perceiver. No here, no there, no inner, no outer, no problem. And a lot of a lot of spiritual teachings, and a lot of. Um, what do we hear in the name of non-duality or in the name of renunciation, etc., is pointing to the dissolution of the world and the dissolution of the self. When we hear in Buddhism about not-self, what we easily take away is that part, the, the, the sense of dissolution. And as I say, there might be moments where we're very inspired by being free of the constraints of the sense of self. But in equal measure with that goes along our abject fear of the loss of self. Because this is all I've ever known. So (coughs) that's what we're often pointed to. And the assumption is that as if there's a a destination called no mountain, no self, no world, no problem. And it may be that as we investigate our experience, either just in tiny moments while you've been here on retreat, or in increasing ways and increasing depth and increasing degrees within our life, that we have access to that kind of wide open, silent, empty, free space, a sense of goneness where the, the naughtiness of self is gone, where the um, crudity of this and that here and there, the crudity of duality is gone. No mountain, no self, no problem. And yet, that too is somehow unsatisfying. There's something that doesn't feel okay about leaving the world behind, about dismissing all of this, this beauty, this aliveness, this universe, this humanity, this heart. And as we uh, sense into, contact, have experience of, actually find our ease and rest in the void of non-duality, we might then start to ask, but how does the void display itself? How do we know emptiness? Not as something. Things are part of duality.
how the the life in its silence, in its depth, in its stillness, in its vastness, actually gets displayed like this. Like this, as the world, as the mountain, as birds. So first there's the mountain, then there's no mountain, then there's a mountain again. Except the second mountain isn't the same as the first mountain. It's radiant. It's transparent. It doesn't mean we can uh, look through it to the other side. But it means that we see through that in the appearance of things, in the birdsong, in the sensations in the body, in the flickering of thought life, in the whole texture of life, that which is sweet and that which is sour, that which we like and that which we don't like, we see the fullness of life at play. What the poet calls, we see the moon in a dewdrop. The universe in the bird song. The vastness of life in this breath. In the look in someone's eye. In the preciousness of all that is. So we might say that we come full circle. Or we might say we never need go anywhere at all. This world is just the world. And if all we've got is the world, there's something unfulfilled and unsatisfying about that. Yet when we look deeply into the world, we find there is no world. It dissolves. It's gone. This silent, infinite, black, empty space. Wherever we look. And yet, how does that emptiness reveal itself? As the world. This is where we get to live. This is where we get to meet ourselves and life. This is where we get the extraordinary, unbidden privilege to explore. Make good use of it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.